This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, we've got a great one lined up for you. Today's guest is Dee Snyder, lead vocalist for New York City rock and roll legends, Twisted Sister. Together, we take a deep dive into the inspiration, writing, recording, and overall story behind their 1984 breakout smash hit, We're Not Gonna Take It. Take it from their third full-length album, Stay Hungry. Dee, as usual, was in top form, his energy practically oozing out of the speakers. He talks about writing the track all the way back in 1980, when the band was literally starving. An anthem based on drive, perseverance, and a deep belief in oneself. Dee lets us in on a few secrets in this episode that directly relate to We're Not Gonna Take It, that involve the Sex Pistols, Def Leppard, and producer Tom Worman. It was amazing to hear that there were those in Atlantic Records who couldn't hear the potential in the track, and that it was almost left off the record. Unbelievable. And, seeing as the December holidays are here, it was only fitting to discuss the companion piece to We're Not Gonna Take It, the standard O Come All Ye Faithful, which was recorded by the band in 2006 for their holiday album, A Twisted Christmas. The similarities between the songs are striking, and the story even cooler. So make sure you stick around for all of this and a whole lot more. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. So, I would normally jump right into the episode at this moment with today's featured guest. However, I felt the need to provide everybody with a brief oral history of Twisted Sister and what Dee Snyder and the band still mean to this once 11-year-old middle-class kid from the suburbs. This band was the real deal. They began in 1972 and played every hole in the wall around New York, New Jersey, and New England, quickly amassing a huge following, routinely selling out two to 3,000 seat venues. The band tried desperately to get signed by a major label, only to be turned down time and again. Persistence and timing paid off. Secret Records, a small label out of England, signed the band and released their first album, Under the Blade, 1982, which proved an underground hit for the band in the UK, leading to a legendary performance at the Reading and Leeds Festivals in August of that year. Around this time, Atlantic Records UK came knocking and offered the band a deal. The next release, 1983's You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, was released but received little fanfare outside of the UK and literally zero promotion from Atlantic Records in the United States. It was the title track of that album where I first became aware of the band, as it was featured on a cassette compilation I had purchased. As fate would have it, the band recorded a second album for Atlantic in 1984 titled Stay Hungry. The lead single, We're Not Gonna Take It, was a smash hit, as well as its follow-up, I Wanna Rock and The Power Ballad, The Price. Their videos were in heavy rotation on MTV, bringing this twisted bunch of freaks into every teenager's living room across America. 
These guys were my Kiss, my Alice Cooper, and my New York Dolls all rolled into one. Their rebellious look and lyrics spoke to me like no other band had up to that point. They were my band, and I wasn't just a Fairweather fan. I bought and loved their two follow-up albums after Stay Hungry and remain a loyal fan to this day. To say I'm excited about this episode would be a vast understatement. If you'd have told this 11-year-old boy back in 1984 that he would someday be deconstructing We're Not Gonna Take It with the man himself, D. Snyder, I would have laughed at you. My dreams are still coming true. Thank you, D, JJ, Eddie, Mark, and AJ for being a huge part of the soundtrack to my youth. So let's jump in now with D and get the full story behind We're Not Gonna Take It. Hey D, how's it going? It is going great, man. Life is pretty grand. I mean, these are these are like weird times, certainly the last couple of years. So you got, and that should give people more perspective, not less, on how fortunate or lucky you are. You know, when you hear some you know nightmarish stories over these past years about not only you know death and sickness and illness, but then personal financial loss and struggling that some people are going through. So. If you were able to escape those things, you consider yourself blessed, whoever you are. Absolutely. Well, I told you before we started uh, recording here that I had given the listeners, uh, you know, some some history of Twisted Sister because I just I felt it was really important to, to what we're going to talk about today. The perseverance of your band. I I. I, I chronicled everything you went through from the early 70s, building the band, getting that deal with Secret Records, finally getting signed with Atlantic, doing those legendary performances at the Reading and Leeds Festival over in England in August of 82. And then You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. That was the first track I heard from you guys. It was on one of those KTEL heavy metal comps <laughs> or cassettes back in the day. And uh, the next thing I know, you were my band. You you spoke to this 11-year-old kid from Port Charlotte, Florida, like no other. And I want you to take us back right now. You're in between You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, which is crazy because that record came out in 83. You had toured behind it. And then Stay Hungry came out on May 10th of 84. You know, back then, time was different as a kid. Five months seemed like 10 years. I'm looking back now going, when did you even have time to, to collect your thoughts and begin writing Stay Hungry? So I guess I'm going to ask, you know, do you remember writing? We're not going to take it. Uh, let me just say one thing about your, your, your reference to time. First of all, you know, when I was writing my memoirs, uh, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic, uh, I, you know, I did it chronologically and I was amazed to step back and go, wow, that was only six months, you know, and it seemed like, oh my God, it seemed like forever. And now, you know, it, it, you look at six months ago, oh, it's nothing, you know, it's a, but anyway, but yes, yeah, so I get that, you know, that, that time, in just juxtaposition or whatever you want to call it at that point. So the way I used to work and, and I say used to, uh, I regret that I stopped right after stay hungry, this process. And that was probably one of the problems with come out and play. Uh, and this should be pretty interesting to you. I was always writing the next album while recording the previous one. Awesome. So, we, you know, the first album under the blade, as they, you know, they, some people, there's, there's some phrase that, you know, that the first album takes like years, years and years to create. Because a lot of those songs were like, you can't stop rock and roll. Lift up your hands in praise. You can't stop rock and roll. 
which, by the way, was supposed to be on the Under the Blade record. That was going to be the title track for Under the Blade. We had already had that song. That was a, a club song. And uh, that the last minute, the uh, that the president, Martin Hooker, who wound up to do music for Nations, but he was the president of Secret Records, he panicked. He said, rock and roll as a word wasn't acceptable. I mean, makeup wasn't acceptable when that album came out. And the idea of the word, using the word rock wasn't cool. So he pulled that and we saved it, wound up becoming the second record. So, but while we're recording um, Under the Blade, and we were literally in a barn in, a, in the farm country of England, it was bizarre. Mendoza, when he would like test out his bass amps, I would watch the cows literally just shitting, <laughs> like wildly <laughs> shitting. Like he'd be in there. <clears throat> it was like amazing. Maybe you can help old elderly people with that. So, but I remember I sit in the van and writing and working on the next record. And so I'd often say, like guys would say, you know, like, uh, oh, we need more like this. I said, oh, I got something good coming up on the next album. They're like, well, what about this album? But, you know, I said, no, I'm not, it's not there yet, I'm, I, but I've got these ideas. So, and then when we came to Can't Stop Rock and Roll, I was working on the Stay Hungry record. Now, the uh, in particular, uh, no, but the one song you mentioned is We're Not Gonna Take It is an oddity. We're Not Gonna Take It, there was a period of time, you know, as, as you know, bands in, in my position where you break through in a big way, you get that initial like arms wrapped around you and your, your, the, your people have stood by you for so long are like, yes. And then at some point when everybody starts getting into the band that they secretly held and treasured, I call it the diamond in the pocket. Yeah. That band. And for me, it was ACDC. It was queen that you, you, you wrote it everywhere acdc acdc you wanted the world to know about acdc twisted used to play it in the bars this is a band called acdc this is sin city check them out like nobody knew them and you wanted everybody should know acdc and then all of a sudden back in black hits and the original fans get this sense of abandonment like somehow something now the diamond is on display for the world to see and they're being pushed back away from the display case you're in the back of the crowd going but i was i was that guy i mean i saw queen open for mata hoople i was the only person in the Euros theater singular who was standing and screaming so loud i was embarrassing the band because the only thing worse than no response from the audience is one really weird tall guy in the balcony <laughs> losing his shit. I mean, and I remember yeah. Brian May at one point, like squinting, looking up, going, who is? Like my, my friends are begging me to sit down. It's Queen. It's like Queen. I'm losing my shit. You know, so I hope I can curse. So, but, <laughs> but that's, you, you know, so we're not going to take it became that song. Suddenly we broke through and it was this thing. Then all of a sudden those original fans like, Oh, yeah, the band sold out and went commercial. Now, back to your point. I wrote the hook to that song in 1980. Couldn't have been more broke. Couldn't have been more struggling. Uh, it came to me, but I didn't have the whole song. And I sat with that hook for three years. I kept coming back to it. I remember Eddie Kramer. We had recorded I'll Never Grow Up Now with Eddie Kramer on a demo. We recorded Bad Boys of Rock and Roll, two anthemic-type songs. Very, I call them, uh, we're not going to take it, you know, uh, Mach 1, Mach 2. You know, like they were like the fir first yeah. attempts at that anthemic sing-along kind of thing. And then and I remember saying, these are really good. What else? You got anything else? I said, I'm working on something that is going to be huge. And I had the hook, 1980. And, just, and so every time I'd come back to writing, 
do a writing session. And I always would pull out that hook and I couldn't figure out what the verse and chorus was supposed to be like. So um, in 1983, when I was working on stuff for, we were working on You Can't Stop Rock and Roll and I was writing for state, the next album, wasn't titled yet. I finally figured it out, like how that would work. And I finished Stay Hungry. So I uh, say, hungry. I finished when I can take it. So the hook for when I can take it was written 1980. I finished the song along with all the other songs on the stay hungry album in 83, while we were in England recording, you can't stop rock and roll. So I was always writing ahead. Yeah. Now, the reason I said that I wish I continued that because things happened in 84 on the band, the band was already starting to come apart after so many years. It was finally happening for us. And because uh, Mark Mendoza used to be the keeper of the studio, he would be in the studio with the producer every single second. And we were starting to have a falling out and he stopped. He didn't like the choice of Tom Warman. The record company picked him and you know we wanted to please the record company at that point. And uh, he wouldn't show up. So I had, instead of being in the other room working on the next album. I was in the studio sitting with Tom Worman and Jeff Workman, the engineer who was amazing for every single second of Stay Hungry. But the reason I say that's regrettable is because if I, I wound up writing Come Out and Play after the band had broke, after I had money, sitting poolside in a big house with five cars, two boats, uh, I was, you know, I was a fat cat, not literally, but, but, and I remember sitting by the pool trying to write the next teen angst anthem and I'm going, I had nothing. I mean, I remember saying I, I felt like so content, like I had done it. And if I had stuck to my original pattern, I would have written, come out and play while Stay Hungry was being recorded, not released. So we would not even have, we would still be in that very, very hungry place. Yeah. And you would have given you a very different follow-up record to stay hungry, a more appropriate one. But, and I, I love come out and play, but it certainly was written from a different position than the first three, which were just that endless struggle that Twisted Sister was always dealing with. Well, a, a couple of things. I, I I know you know this. I, I I wasn't a Fairweather fan. I was there for all the records, up through Love is for Suckers, up through everything else you've done in, in your career. I loved Come Out and Play. I, I never would have known this had you not, you know, and I, I've, I've read some interviews in the past with you regarding Come Out and Play. I kind of knew your feelings, but you even expounded on them just now. But to me, I, I, I just loved it. And for anybody to cry sell out or you're not my band i mean we're not going to take it i mean there there was songs on under the blade you can't stop rock and roll that were just as commercial ride to live live to ride uh i am i me i mean these were anthems like you said they were kind of the first takes of we're not going to take it i'm really glad you're saying i appreciate you saying i should say really glad i appreciate you saying these things because it's very confusing to the artist you don't i and certainly i didn't feel like i was disconnected from what I was writing and my messages, you know, it's all about those first three albums, especially. And to me, it was singing along anthem, throw your fist in the air and join in. You know, it was always uh, not, I would say every single song, but the majority of stuff, even more thrashy things like tear it loose on the first album, you know, just, oh, yeah. I was always Slade was my inspiration. Sex pistols were inspiration. I was always Alice Cooper was inspiration. Yeah, and I was into Sabbath, and I was into Zeppelin, and I was, and you know, 
Uh, but I was always about, I, 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 well, one thing that confused me, I never expected the band to break, but I said, how can a band that's influences are all multi-platinum bands not put out multi-platinum records? It just seemed to make sense. If it's ACDC, <laughs> Judas Priest, Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath, these are your bands, Slate, all these bands that sold millions. Well, if you, do, if you were inspired by all them, why wouldn't your music have that same crossover appeal? And it did ultimately, but there was a time where people looked yeah. at us and said, "Well, you know, you guys are never going to do anything," which I once said about Metallica. Uh, well, sitting, standing, <laughs> on when we were touring with them, you probably heard this. I mean, we were on tour in Holland, and I'm watching the band. I, they were, we were opening for them that night, so I got to watch the show. And I turned to Mendoza, my bass player, go, "You know, these guys got a lot of heart." Never going to go anywhere. And, uh, and you know, and of course, you have know, words you live to, live to. I'm honest enough to admit it, but I just thought they were so heavy. I couldn't imagine they could break through. And I'm sure people looked at us in, you know, in 81, 82, 83, and you see these dirt bags wearing, you know, like makeup and they're going, oh, that's never going to sell. Who's going to buy that? Yeah, well, the be the best part about you guys, I mean, this was during the glam era of the '80s, and uh, although you were you were pulling from the the playbook of the New York Dolls and and, and dressing and, and and being androgynous, I mean, y you weren't good looking guys in makeup. Sorry. <laughs> well, that was a no, believe me, that was a crushing realization. You know, so you know, so you got this, you know, New York Dolls, you know, influence for sure. The twisted started as a Dolls. I I joined three years after the original inception of the band, and you know, and all. And, and this whole makeup Bowie and, you know, all these bands that, that inspired us. And in the earliest days, I mean, I was really, I was really, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, but women's clothing, I mean, I was, you know, pouting and, and nothing. And then, you know, and my wife was like kind of the first one to tell me, you know, you're not pretty. You know, and then I was like, <laughs> what do you say? You know, if I suck, you know, I love Tim Curry's big influence. And then I just started to realize that every photo a fan, and we had huge following, people have seen the documentary, We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. You know, we had uh, it's just, this crazy, t tens of thousands of people followed the band in, in the tri-state area. But every picture they brought, every picture that they blew up and said, oh, I love the show, it was, a, it was a grimace. It was some scary, intense, I said, that's what they they're not buying me shaking my ass and pouting. Yeah, I got to leave that for Brett Michaels when he comes along. You know, yeah. so I, I realized, okay, you know, you know, be true to yourself. My wife said, you don't wear makeup, do you? you wear war paint? She goes, I don't care what you do, put a mole on it, let lip lock, whatever you're doing, it's still paint by numbers. She says, when you put it on, you like make dots on your face and you're connecting the lines <laughs> and you're paint. He says, even when you put it on, it's like you're so aggressive. There's nothing feminine. Stop, you know. And then she finally she got me stuff because she started making clothes for me and I, I wanted like really androgynous stuff so she was making crazy feminine outfits in the early days and eventually she sort of like got me realized that's not what you are you're you know somebody called me raggedy ann on acid once you know say it's road warriors <laughs> it's it's mad max it's it, 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 it's just, you know, someone said uh, Jessica Je uh, Jessica Parker, whatever her name is, Sarah Jessica Parker, dipped in acid, someone said. Whatever that is, it ain't pretty, baby. Cinder your Cinderella's ugly sisters. Yeah. 
Well, what that that's I'm telling you right now. I mean, you had parents all over the world that that weren't as offended by the pentagrams on a Slayer or Motley Crue record when they saw you guys. It was like, whoa! And for every person that I knew that loved you, there was someone that hated you, and that's what drew me to you guys. You were that polarizing. You were all over MTV. You'd go to school. I'd be in my Twisted Sister shirt. For every person that said they loved it, there'd be someone that said they hated it, and that's why I loved you. Yeah, <laughs> I hate saying the word by design because it sounds calculated. It's not. But it wasn't calculated. It's just I realized I wanted to be, I want people to love us or hate us. Don't give me that middle ground. You remember a movie with Madonna, and I'm not a Madonna fan. Well, it was called The Truth or Dare. Yes, of course. There's a scene where Kevin Costner comes backstage after the show, and he goes, and she goes, how do you like it? He goes, it was cute. <laughs> and she is mortified. And I totally felt for her. I said, I get it. Like, like cute? You know, like say anything, say it was awful, but give me, give me a commitment. Don't give me like, yeah, not bad. You know, that never wanted that to be the response. And what you get from that polarizing, you know, performance and stuff like that is you get the people like you, Chris, who love it and those who hate it, but the people who love it, they will stand by up for you and defend. And, and they're, they're like, they're so loyal to you. So, you know, we really wanted to create that. From the fans, not I didn't. We didn't want to appeal to everybody. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going to jump into the track here right now, and and I just got to say, this song. You know, you, you you talked about the Pistols. You talked. I mean, this song is, is is Rock and Roll Night by Kiss. It's Anarchy in the UK. It's it's Blitzkrieg Bop from the Ramones. There was there was a punk attitude here, and I know you guys being from New York, you saw a lot of the punk things. But you know, this song is 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 one of those top ten rock and roll anthems. School's Out by Cooper. I mean, this this is in there. And I definitely have punk uh, influences. If I you know if I give my list of ten. Albums I would take to you know Desert Island albums. Never mind the Bollocks is one of them. Yeah, New York Dolls uh, first album is one of them. So I mean those influences there. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a little secret. So nobody's listening, right? <laughs> uh, so so um, John, uh, Johnny Rotten was doing one of those singles reviews, and uh, this was 1984, and one of the singles was "We're Not Going to Take It." And he went off. These fucking guns, they fucking, they stole our fucking song and ripping off the business. They fucking got and he just, and it was true. I literally, I said, <laughs> no, no future is such a waste at the end of the song that, that, da, da, da. And I incorporated it and we're not going to take it. We won by default because everybody else got F's and D's. We got a C plus. So, um, <laughs> but, but Johnny called, me, he called no. me on my shit for sure. Well, I, I, I gotta tell you, I've, I've lived this song for most of my life. 11 year old boy, you know, heard it for the first time. But being able to dive into this and really look at it, I went back and I listened to the original demo, which was two minutes and 47 seconds of this song. This uh, track that made it on Stay Hungry is three minutes and 38 seconds, about a minute longer. Uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But for the most part, as you said, the song was the song. The hooks were there. The first six seconds of this song is, is who said there's not a drum hook in rock and roll? This is the most, one of the most iconic drum intros ever. The, the minute you hear it with that cowbell, you know what song it is. Let's take a minute just to acknowledge AJ Pirro, the late AJ Pirro, my drummer. And yeah, I mean, thanks for you know recognizing that, acknowledging that. AJ was a child prodigy. He trained with Gene Krupa, if you believe that. When he wow. was 10, he was touring the world as a, with a swing band. I saw a picture of him 
with an orchestra of adults. And he's on a riser in front of the Eiffel Tower in, pa- in Paris, 10 years old, little AJ, Pier- little, it was little Anthony Pirro on the drums. So he could play <laughs> anything. And he was often very frustrated that Twisted Sister limited what he was allowed to do. And I limited what he was allowed to do because, I, you know, I wanted it simple. But I would say, AJ, you know how many people could say that they've written a drum beat that is instantly recognizable by the world and brings smiles to faces. There's a handful. There's American band. There's there's a uh, honky tonk women. As simple as that is. Little beginnings. Yeah. You know. And I said, and we're not going to take it as one of those beginnings. And I had said, now in high school, because uh, you know I do voiceover work. My first voiceover gig, I was the announcer for the marching band. Uh, please welcome the 1972-73 Baldwin Senior High School Marching Band. And I used to love going to the football games that they came, they would play the drum cadence as they came out on the field. And I remember the cadence was boot that doot 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 the uh, a quiet riot had real success with "Come On Feel the Noise," so we said a, sl- a, a Slade cover. Yeah, a Slade. Yeah, my, who influenced my writing the song? But that they started with the the drum beat. Come on, feel the noise. Girls boom, whatever is that, and and then the chorus. So it was decided. Okay, let's do the same. That same thing i said but i don't i I said aj i want a drum cadence like i want like we're marching into battle here so aj was accomplished drummer and he he said okay came back and he said i got something what about this and he just sits down and goes like oh yes you just could hear the marching band coming out and they now and now you'll see marching bands Marching out onto a college game, playing on the playing, we're not going to take it. Doing the case, so cool. It was very so much cool. by design, and you instant. It's instantaneously recognizable. Well, and and talking about Frankie Benali, uh, rest his soul as well, who just yeah. passed uh, from Quiet Riot. Th- you know, basically, it was just kick snare, yeah. kick snare, kick snare for come on, feel the noise. Yes. And and in, in this instance, it kind of would have worked with this, but having uh, what what AJ brought to this is just like I said, it's it's iconic. It's a universal. You hear this thing. I've heard it at football games. I hear this song everywhere to this day and and drummers acknowledge it's some people like you know go places and they'll, they'll be playing it and they go no i'm going no that's not it you, there it's it's a pretty intricate little you know it just has and drummers drummer drummers will say it's really a cool little cadence he created yeah, it's it, it's definitely got got a swing to it, and you know it, the song. W- why not start out with the chorus? It's it's so catchy, it's undeniable, and it's just this lyric is just about as rebellious as you can get. We're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. That descending guitar riff comes in two times. With the drums building. And then we're into verse one.
talk about the demo a little bit here, D. Um, uh, the lyrics for verse one, as they are, we've got the right to choose and there ain't no way we'll lose it. This is our life. This is our song. We'll fight the powers that be just. Don't pick our destiny because you don't know us. You don't belong. Lines two and four. This is our life. This is our song. And you don't know us. You don't belong. They were flip-flopped on the demo. Do you recall that? Actually, no. Um... <laughs> But you know, I but but then it's, I'll, I'll I'll discover notes or whatever, and I'll and I'll, I'll laugh because the, the word like um, uh, burn in hell. There's just five words to say as you go down, down, down. And at one point, I had just six words because I actually had it. You are going to burn in hell. I go, well, nah, that's too <laughs> literal. So like, gosh, 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 you're gonna burn in hell. There's five words. So it was just yeah. I don't know, like where those moments come uh, come about. I actually. I guess JJ. JJ is the uh, you know curator of all things twisted, my guitar player. So I didn't I didn't realize. I know he realized released a lot of demos and stuff. So yeah. So I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, and this is probably a good time to ask you this. You know, I've probably uh, seen darn near more interviews with you than probably any fan out there. Uh, followed your whole whole career. I don't recall you ever strapping on a guitar or playing, but you know you're credited, and I know you've written all these songs lyrically and musically. But did you write these on guitar? Guitar, or were you humming them to, to to JJ or someone in the band, and, and then writing the lyrics and the melodies? How did that work? So I wrote one song in my career on uh, guitar, and it speaks for itself. Destroyer. Oh wow, cool. But think listen to the guitar part. Dun 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 I mean, it was like so infantile, it was effective, but I was I realized, oh my god, I'm real I can't write like I think in my head. So I would sing all the parts. And so, and, you know, and sometimes they're very simple, uh, even drum parts, I would sing like, uh, you know, under the blade, I would sing it to the guys. By singing it, it allowed me to be much better guitar player like you know uh in uh, under the blade again and i would say the guys go what what was that i went slow it up they go and they'd be going you know and under the and uh burning hell has another one these these busy riffs i could do that because it wasn't i wasn't stuck to a guitar so i would sing the parts and then i would sing them to the guys and then they would play them it's amazing you were hearing these orchestrations in your head. 
you know, most people have to pick up a guitar. I, I hear orchestrations in my head. I'm a guitar player that I cannot get to my brain to my fingertips sometimes. And I lose the idea, you know, the, 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 the you were able to channel this to your band members and, and write these full compositions. It, it's incredible. Not a lot of people can do that. D it was difficult. I mean, because First of all, I drink so much coffee. I'm always like, I'm kind of like now, you know, I'm on, I'm on a cappuccino <laughs> and two black coffees already. So, I, you know, I was on, um, I was once um, early on, Twisted Sister almost fired me for being too caffeinated. These are guys that were doing hard drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, right. I, I had a, I've been in the band for a couple of months and it's the first band meeting and I'm like, oh, I'm pretty excited. Band meetings, that was official. A band meeting. <laughs> Go to JJ's house in Manhattan. Manhattan, the big city. I live in the suburbs. Oh, I mean, JJ French's apartment. He's like the founder of the band. I sit down in the living room. I look and I realize the other four guys are all sitting across from me, looking at me. And I'm like, uh -oh. I said, oh, exactly. That's what I said, row, row. And then he goes, dude, you got to calm down. You got to cut back on the coffee. You're killing us. You're killing us. You're out of your mind. And, and, and he used to time my caffeine. He would sit there and go, oh, here he goes. After he, he's, He'd note when I started drinking the coffee, and then he'd go, it's about 20 minutes later, you start going. So, um, yeah, so when I, when I try and sing the songs to the guys, I'd be nervous because um, I was the youngest in the band, and I'd be hyped up, and I'd be like, well, then, then this part comes up, and it's like, and they go, whoa, 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 slow it up. What? Slow down. Slower. Na, 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 na. Slower. Okay. Na, 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 na. I said, okay, but now speed it up. And, you know, and, so, that, so it was not the easiest process in the world. That That's crazy. Well, I got to say, you know, this song is based basically around like a 12-bar blues riff. I wish I could write a song this simple and this effective. I think every songwriter in the world, they, they, they you know, you always wish. I don't say that this is simple in a condescending way, but my gosh, just it's so simple that it's perfect. And you said it best earlier. You talked about being by that pool, writing the follow-up record. You had everything. Now you're trying to write the next teen angst anthem. But, you know, going back to 1980, you were definitely hungry in 80. I mean, uh, under, under the blade hadn't, hadn't even been released yet. You, yeah. know, you were still, you were still killing yourself out there in the clubs. So, you know, these lyrics, we've got the right to choose. There ain't no way we'll lose it. This is our life. This is our song. I mean, sounds to me like that's what you were living. These are complete, hundred percent true. One hundred percent, and you, and you, you know, um, you're right. And again, thank you for for bringing that out. That it was 1980. The chorus inspiration came to me. Now, 84, 83, I wrote the verses and the lyrics for those verses. But still, you know, I remember I writing that part. I'm in a studio apartment, and by the way, I, I you know, um, again, this is a sounds like a brag. But I'm going to brag anyway. I've always been able to create endlessly. And the problem for me is that I it takes, and you well know, the, the, you have the idea, but now to demo it, prepare it, finish it out, it's such a long process. You, you, you know, And you just get this backlog of things you want to do, and you just can't get them out fast enough. So I learned to just shut it off because if I'm not by a recorder, I would forget songs that I came up with, like walking down the street. Yeah. And then I would be like so frustrated because I had this good idea and I can't remember it. I'd be so pissed. So the Stay Hungry album in almost its entirety, with the exception of the price, was written in 45 minutes in one 
writing session. And it was like this. Um, so now we're in the balls of our ass. Uh, we're, well, I say balls of our ass. So, you know, uh, I mean, we had some, we had success with uh, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, but I'm still in a studio apartment. I've got, I'm married. I've got a kid. Suzette goes, I'm going to the grocery store and Jesse's sleeping in the same room with me. You know, she, we went to the studio. And so I said, okay, this is a kind of, this is a good time to do a little writing. So I work with song titles, always song titles. I jotted out a title and that would inspire the feel of the song, the message of the song, the, the, the approach to the song. And I would sit with my list. So she leaves, turn on my tape recorder and I start going down my list. And in 45 minutes, I put a whole bunch of ideas down, uh, including I want to rock, you know, the finishing, we're not going to take it, burn in hell. These are all in that 45 minute session. And I remember Suzette came back, said, uh, what'd you do? I said, I did some writing. So how'd it go? I said, I think I got some good ideas. And that was that session right there. <laughs> but um, that's incredible. Those words, I pride myself on having an expanded vocabulary. And I, again, the idea that rockers are stupid, that's always resonated with me because we've chosen this life. We've chosen this music, this, this approach to things. Somehow we're not as smart as regular people. So in my lyrics, inspired by people like Robert Plant and people like Freddie Mercury, who use just their, their vocabulary in their songs is insane. Who uses trite, jaded, confiscated? That's a four-syllable word, dude. <laughs> I rhyme the four-syllable yeah. word. Yeah. You know, I'm like Eminem. I never even thought about it from that from that standpoint. That's that that's really interesting. You brought that up. You you know, even the word gall you used in the second verse. You know who? Yeah. Who's so <laughs> I'm angry. I'm angry, but I'm expressing it to the people that I'm I'm aiming at with intelligence. Is how dare you condescend to me? How dare you look at me the way you look at me? Yeah. How dare you judge me? And by me, it's we're not going to take it, by the way, because I know damn well that I am not the only one that, uh, with any kind of intellect or brain or who's being judged because we have this love for rock and roll. I'm so glad you said that, too. I had it in my notes here that it wasn't. I'm not going to take it. It could have been. But it has so much more impact, I feel, with we're not going to take it. It's like it's all inclusive. Yes, it, absolutely. I mean, certainly I wrote I Am On Me, which was very much a personal declaration of independence. People yeah. like yourself, many people like see that song. That was a hit in England, and that song was other people's direct declaration of independence. Standing there, going, "I am a, I'm a person, you son of a bitch. I'm, I'm going to be who I'm going to be." That's what that song was. But on this song, it was very much, you know, about us. All these thousands of kids who were already getting turned on to Twisted Sister, who were believing in the band, and very much, you know, we are collectively not going to take this. Hey, everybody, whatever you do, don't turn off the podcast. We got lots more with D. Snyder after a few words from our sponsors. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. 
DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits, to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with the Spotify Canvas Generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. This week on the After Party Podcast, we take a look back at everything that was going on in the world of music, film, TV, and pop culture around the time of September 22nd, 1984, which was when We're Not Gonna Take It peaked at number 21 on the Billboard Singles Chart. Around this time when We're Not Gonna Take It is at its peak, it's safe to say that you probably would have been able to see the following movies in the theater because they had been released like a month or two previous so i would assume that all of these movies you might have been able to see in the theater it is as follows the last starfighter the muppets take manhattan uh-huh revenge of the nerds purple rain red dawn the woman in red star trek 3 the search for spock uh-huh ghostbusters gremlins Ghostbusters and Gremlins were both released on the same day, June 8th of 1984. Uh, the Karate Kid and Conan the Destroyer were all, all in the theaters around this time. That's, that's insane. Was, was Raiders of the Lost Ark in 84? I didn't have that on my list, but, but okay. I just went, I would just go and buy like what may have still been in the theaters. So if that was yeah, earlier, I saw was- I saw most of those movies. And I, I I think I saw most of them in the theater. Nice. Either that or, either that or, uh, you know, on VHS because of course uh, we didn't have Blockbuster, but we have we had Southern Video in Port Charlotte. <laughs> let me tell you, where I, where <laughs> I was at, we had Top Forty Video and D's Video. You know, and they had it was one of the, it was those video stores where like, well, the one D's had a back room, <laughs> and yeah, it had it had the pearls hanging down, <laughs> yeah. so you couldn't see what was in there. Yeah, but, yeah. But dude, Top Forty Video. Eminescent, all the porno movies, they were just up on the top shelf. So you could see the sides of the boxes. Like you could see like very graphic sexual pictures if you just looked up, which was very strange. It was a small store. So uh, different, di- di- different times, different times. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Chris, one more thing I want to say is like about a month later, October 26th of 1984, The Terminator was released. The first uh. one. If you want to hear the rest of this episode of The After Party, plus you want to hear an entire giant back catalog of episodes of The After Party podcast, 
Just head over to ChrisDemakes.com and sign up for our supporting cast. Not only will you get all these episodes, but you also be supporting the podcast that you love. And now back to Chris's conversation with the legendary D Snyder. Well, uh, you know, after verse one, you're immediately thrown into the first chorus. Forty-eight seconds happens quick. Chorus one, same as the intro. We're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. Of course, you got the unison backing vocals that come here. I, I think another pair of stereo guitars come in here. The whole chorus lifts up. At the end of the chorus, you got that descending riff. It only happens one time. And you're right back into verse two. You're so condescending. There's your big word, D. <laughs> One of your big words. Your gall. Your gall. I think there's another song I think of that has the word gall in it. G-A-L. Your gall is never ending. We don't want nothing. Not a thing from you. I go back and forth between the between the, the intellectual and the guttural. Uh, I was watching yeah. there was this funny yeah. thing for the voice where um who are the people? Adam, what's his name? Okay, give me the names. I see I don't know their names flat out, so you have to help me. But Adam from Maroon 5, who by the way started he confessed to me that it was singing i want to rock at a camp talent show and everybody was wowed that made him say oh maybe i, I could be a singer so it was i want to rock that got him up and then uh a blake whatever what was the guy the the country blake, blake shelton. shelton there's a video of them riding in the car singing we're not going to take it and they're and and talking about it and they go uh, look it's so cool because he says we're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. And he's like, he's like being bad. He's using the slang to drive it home. Yeah. But there is that, that juxtaposition. There's a word again of the, uh, you know, very proper grammatical confiscated, but then say ain't nothing from you, you know, that, that we're street at the same time. So I, I, nobody's ever done this heavy analysis on it before, but I didn't either. No, it just, this was just coming out of me. So I'm not really thinking about it, but that's, but it is, but if you, if I analyze it, I realize it's really that, duality that I was living. Gosh, it really is. You know, you, you think of, uh, I mean, how many parents hated, I can't get no satisfaction. That pissed off parents from here yeah, to yeah, Berlin yeah. and to Tokyo. Yeah. And that's the same That's the same thing we're talking here. You're, you're highbrow in one sense. Oh, you're so condescending. Your gall is never ending. And then, and then you're taking it to, like you said, to the street. Like, we don't want nothing. Not a thing from you, you know? Your life is trite and jaded. Boring and confiscated. If that's your best, your best won't do. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a really into, I mean, I really was proud of that line because and I love it's I awesome. love shoving it down people's throats intelligently because yeah. because it was it was really is observational. So like you you just shitting all over us and that's all you got. I was like, yeah, you just punch me in the face, and when you in those movies, the guy goes, That's it. 
you know, and and, yeah. and really, yet it was phrased in a very, I think, a very in- intelligent way. If that's your best, your best won't do, sir. It was, be gone, be gone <laughs> with you, off with you, sir. Your best did not do, your fails in your mission. <laughs> well, here, here's a question for you, D. Are, are we now at bridge one or is this pre-chorus one? This part happens twice. And this is where the arrangement and this, this song doesn't follow a traditional arrangement. That's the other thing that I love about this. There's a guitar climb here. It goes E to F, F sharp to B. And that climb happens with the right before it's whoa, whoa, that happens twice. And then we're right. Yeah, we're free. Yeah, we'll fight. Yeah, you'll see. And this big yeah at the end, all the yeahs are gang vocals. one there's some crowd cheering with claps and whistles was that uh, your idea was that something tom worman thought of H- how'd that come about i don't think tom worman thought of anything and I, and, and as his you know he, he gets very upset when i and i never acknowledge his rebuttals uh, just to drive him nuts uh but <laughs> i've yeah, noticed yeah, never i don't i'm not even gonna tell you, like he doesn't exist uh but no he, he as he said to us day one i don't write i don't create I just, I don't touch the board. I'll just tell you if I like it or not. So it definitely wasn't okay. his idea. And I think it's just how I heard it in my head. You know, and you, yeah. know, you talked about the the unique structure of the song. I, okay, I, I, gotta, I gotta use another. So Penn Jillette, who we became very good friends sitting in the back of two seasons of a, of a, of a, of a van during Celebrity Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice All-Stars. And he said, I love... When, and he and he used a, a poetic term to explain the lyric with the hanging word at the end. Where we go, <laughs> we want the buyers that be just. Don't pick our destiny, cause. Well, apparently that's actually some sort of uh, explained has a word for it where you put the word and it hangs over. And he said, I love the way uh-huh. you use that pentagram because he's so intellectual. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, when you let the word hang over, like. Oh, is that what it is? Because so it, it it was not thought like that. It just came out, and uh, and that's the way it went. So no, and I I'm glad you brought that up because that's really interesting. And it's, there's a rhyme scheme there, just and cause. Even though they're not a, it's not a hard rhyme. It's a I call it a soft rhyme. They they play off each other, and and I didn't know there was a word for that. But that's yeah, really apparently interesting. there is. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I said, so which came first, my song or that word? But apparently it's existed. It's a it's 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 a poetic. It's a way of, it's something in literature, a way of writing. That's awesome. Well, I still don't know if the, the part we just talked about is a pre-chorus or a bridge. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning pre-chorus one, which wasn't there the first time. There's no pre-chorus. And now we're into chorus two. This is a double chorus. We're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. The descending riff comes in one time. And then there's a quick no way 
from that that you let out yeah. there, D. You say no, you say no way, and then something that wasn't on the demo, the guitar solo comes in over the same exact riff, twelve bar blues chords. The guitar solo for the first half, it's it's loosely mimicking the melody line. The second half, the uh, dual guitar, the harmony guitar comes in in the second half. No way. You know, you could have put a wanky 80s guitar solo there with a million notes, but it didn't have to be. It was perfect with this. Was this the idea from the get-go? You know, uh, credit to Eddie Ojeda uh, on that. So, you know, backing up to the, it is a pre-chorus. It's not a bridge. Um, okay. It's a pre-chorus. And I guess, you know, uh, how long did you say the song was? Uh, it's three minutes and 38 seconds. That's, 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 that's like the classic single length. And we were conscious at that point of creating you know singles you know even though i never thought we'd have a hit it still was <laughs> it was about punch 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 hammer get the hell out of there so now um before i get to the solo I'll just say that why there's that short version i would write so many songs usually like 25 songs or more for a uh for a record so rather than fully flesh out and develop all those songs we would, I would just show people a basic song and we would do a quick first chorus, first chorus. Maybe if there was a, I had a, uh, sometimes I didn't have a, a bridge idea at the time, but if I had one that got thrown down on the tape and then we would take that, that demo tape, like the demo you heard, the whole band would listen to it. We'd give it to the road crew, maybe management as well. Uh, sometimes a producer, if they were involved at that point and say, okay, we have 25 songs, which of the 10 uh, do you like? And then everybody would vote for their 10 and whatever got the most votes was, it was very democratic uh, up until, up until come out and play. And at that point I started wielding my, wielding my total control, which I shouldn't have done. I should have kept it diplomatic, honestly. Um, anyway. And uh, so we say, okay, these are the 10. So that's, that's why there's that short abridged version. Now, Ennio Jada, to his credit, um, he was he chosen to do the solo. I would say, okay, you do the solo in this one, judging by their talents or what I thought was applicable, and also making sure that they were evenly split between JJ and Eddie. So Eddie has a solo in this one, and he, I don't, I wasn't there. I don't know if Tom Worman influenced, maybe he did, um, or Eddie, because Eddie was always about melodic solos, but they decide, came in, and I think I was a little, I was surprised actually. Oh, they just mimicked the chorus, which is very interesting because when I finally figured out how to write the verse, I told you I sat with it for three years. The verse is actually a variation on the chorus. Sure. It's, yeah. it's a melodic variant of the chorus. And I learned that, it's all family secret from Def Leppard. Uh, so I, I, was, <laughs> I was listening to uh, Pyromania or whatever because they had all these hits. And again, the idea of wanting to wanting to write a hit. Just saw the Aretha Franklin movie. Did you see that, that, that movie that they've got on Aretha Franklin? I haven't seen that yet, no. And she had like five albums out. And all she kept saying was, I want a hit. I want a hit. You know, I, I have five albums and everybody's giving great reviews. I want a hit record. So yeah. I listened to, I studied the uh, Pyromania record and the way that, uh, and I'll say the band, 
Mutt Lang structured the songs. <laughs> and I said, oh, they're using the choruses, which are very big and melodic, as a sort of they're echoing it with the verse sometimes. So it gave me an idea to do a variant. So now you've got the chorus followed by a variation on the chorus, followed by a guitar solo that is the chorus. So it, it, it's, yeah. it's very repetitive, but fortunately the chorus is good. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say, you know, and this is a song that the chorus is just so hit you over the head, but the verses in this one, they do hark to the chorus, as you said. And I had that written down that... These these verses, when you see live videos of you guys, it's like people aren't just singing the, the refrain, the hook of the chorus. They're singing every damn word to this thing because it's so anthemic. And credit to, again, I studied um, Slade. I'm a huge Slade fan. And one of the, and, and, and like, they would not be, we're not going to take it if not for Slade. I'm sure there's other influences here and there. But Slade, if you listen to, uh, if you're, and people go, who's Slade? Well, they wrote Naughty Holder. Mom were all crazy now. <laughs> they wrote Come Out, wrote, Come Out, Feel the Noise. But they were notorious for a verse that was a hook, a bridge that was a hook, a and a, and a, and a chorus that was a hook. Like every part of the song. I don't know if you know the song Goodbye to Jane. Every song, goodbye to Jane, goodbye to Jane. She's a dog called See how she ran. That was the verse, and it was like, and it repeated. And then, she's a queen. Can you see who and I mean? She's a queen, queen, queen. She's a queen. Hook. And I know she's all right, all right, all right, all right. right. It was like, hook. I say you so young. Hook. We're like, hook, 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 hook. And I was like, okay, remember this. <laughs> remember this. Awesome. This is how you write a catchy song. Every part should be sing should be able to sing to it sing along well you 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 hit a home run with that exact uh template because that this song every part is is perfect we get out of uh chorus two we're back into what i'm you know what i'm gonna call a pre-chorus i, I agree with you there We're right, yeah. We're free, yeah. We'll fight, yeah. You'll see, yeah. The crowd cheering comes back again there, that that sample. We're into chorus three. This is now a quadruple chorus to take us out. But the start of chorus three basically goes back to the intro. There's that drum hook again. It comes back to that. And it comes to just your vocal. It, t- it takes it personal. It, br- it kind of reels it in there because you know the band's coming in after the, after you, you know, we're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. And the band comes back in there.
you're feeling it by that point. The lyric from there is, we're not going to take it. And you say, no, no, we ain't going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. And you say, just you try and make us. Second half, which is now the third of four with with chorus three, we're not going to take it. Come on. Uh, And this is where the song starts to slowly fade. No, we ain't going to take it. You're all worthless and weak. We're not going to take it anymore. Now drop and give me 20, D is saying on the the responses here. We're not going to take it. And you say, a pledge pin? No, we ain't going to take it. On your uniform? And then the last thing you hear is, we're not going to take it anymore. And of course, there's some movie references that we get here at the end. Yeah, Animal House. So, I mean, the song is, as angry as it is, and as, you know, as, as in your face and, you know, uh, me shaking the fist, like menacing as a song could be, it's still fun. Um, and, and, oh, and, and it was so like a fun. party. And so we're at the end with this huge, you know, and we're doing the gang vocals and, and we're all in there and we're singing, we're laughing, we're having a good time. And I, and we were, I was a big animal house fan and I just start goofing around and doing the animal house, you know, is that a pledge <laughs> and all that stuff. What's that on your chest, mister? It's a pledge pin, sir. A pledge pin on your uniform! Just tell me, mister, what fraternity would pledge a man like you? It's a delta pin, sir. You'll report to the stable tonight and every night at 1900 hours. And without that pledge pin, you're all worthless and weak. Drop and give me 20. So, and I was just, I had fun with it. Well, then you cut to the We're Not Gonna Take It video, which I was my idea, and then Marty Calder and I fleshed it out. Marty Calder, the director, uh, it was the first rock video he did, was that We're Not Gonna Take It, he did tons of others. And uh, so he was confident enough in himself and egoless enough to say, recognize that this kid had this great original idea for a rock video. He said, hey man, sit with me, let's write this together, let's work on this together, let's do it all together, side by side. So he allowed me to sit with him. So he said, so who do you see as a father? I said, well, you know, it's based on my dad. And I said, you know, there's this actor, I didn't even know his name. I said, the movie Animal House, he plays <laughs> Niedermeyer. I said, and like, if we can get someone like that, I said, you know, and he goes, why don't we get him? What is he doing? Yeah. Working on a cure for cancer? <laughs> So I was like, to me, he was a huge star, but, you know, for a thousand bucks and a plane ticket, we had him out in California. You know, I remember they, they were like, they were like, I'm going to send a PA to go pick him up at the airport. I'm like, no way I'm picking him up at LAX. So I was like, so excited. And I was walking out there and like walking around the the baggage carousel, you know, at LAX. And I'm looking for, and all of a sudden I hear, you looking for me, mister? In that Niedermeyer, Niedermeyer! I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> so now I'm writing, That's I'm awesome. write, we're writing the dialogue for the father in this opening scene. So now I have Niedermeyer. So I start going into totally derivative Animal House. And my brothers are big Animal House fans. Goes, this is great. So now I've got Niedermeyer paraphrasing Animal House lines at the kid and the whole thing. So it just continued from the record and it just wound up being in the video. All right, mister, what do you think you're doing? You call this a room? This is a pigsty. I want you to straighten up this area now. You are a disgusting slob. Stand up straight. Tuck in that shirt. Adjust that belt buckle. Tie those shoes. Twisted sister. What is that? 
Wipe that smile off your face. Do you understand? What is that? A twisted sister pin on your uniform? What kind of a man are you? You're worthless and weak. You do nothing. You earn nothing. You sit in here all day and play that sick, repulsive, electric twanger. I carried an M16 and you, you carry that, that, that guitar. Who are you? Where do you come from? Are you listening to me? What do you want to do with your life? I want to rock. If we didn't cast Niedermeyer, I never would have done that. Mark Medcalf, his name is, by the way. We're still friendly. Mark (laughs) Medcalf. If we we hadn't cast him, we would never have done that dialogue the way we did and he was participating and he was like i carried an m16 and you carry that 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 guitar i mean that was mark Metcalf just <laughs> riffing like yes what and a lot of that dialogue also with my dad the most the most famous line what do you want to do with your life is what my father used to scream at me all the time that was my dad and i told Metcalf that he goes okay i'm using that what do you want to do with your life well i think everything you just said i got a, as you can see a smile from ear a grin from ear to ear it's fun that's why this song is fun it's angsty it's rebellious but all those little things you know the ad-libbing of you at the end him him ad-libbing and, and riffing yeah. niedemeyer uh dur- during the video you know I, I i gotta ask you here d at this point you're 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 getting the mixes back from the record did, was there any chatter at, at Atlantic from the label? Did anybody in the band, did you know, you know what? I think I have my first hit here. You know, if anything, there was confusion. Atlantic Records, Doug Morris, President Atlantic, um, it, mm-hmm. Atlantic Records had, had rejected us five times. And he even reached out and rejected us at ATCO, who wanted to sign us. He overrode. Uh, he did not get the band. We were finally signed by Phil Carson, who's now my manager, the president of Atlantic Records Europe. And when he called Sauce in England and called the States and uh, told them that he was signing Twisted Sister, Doug Morris was livid. And his exact words was, were, it's on your head, Phil. And Phil <laughs> said, you mean like ABBA, Genesis? Yes. The, who else did he sign? ACDC? He said, uh-huh. Phil has sold over 375 million records with his signings. ABBA was his first signing. He goes like, they're on my head. So he stood, and I, I say he's my manager, one of my closest friends to this day. I don't have a lot of business friends, but Phil, he stood for us, stood up for us. So when the record was coming out, um, I remember uh, we were getting ready to do the video, and there was this insane confusion at the record label as to what the single should be, what the first track should be. And I knew it was when I'm going to take it. But the fact that the record company came back at what, and said they wanted to lead with Burn in Hell. And I was like, now Burn in Hell is a great song. It's become one of the biggest twisted songs uh, that from that record. And, you know, uh, but it was not the lead track for the Stay Hungry album when you were sitting with, we're not going to take it and I want to rock, you know, in your gun, so to speak, load it up. And so the record company was all over the place. So I felt like they just were huh. not understanding it. I was not getting, you know, the band may have been enthusiastic. Oh, and, 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 and understand, 
Tom Warman didn't want to put it on the record. You know what's crazy about what you're saying is, is that a lot of times this could be looked at two ways, that that, that everyone's head is, is just all over the place and scattered, which that's a bad thing, or that's a good thing because there's so much depth to this record. We don't know what song to pick. You're kind of in a quandary. Maybe that's it, but Tom Warman uh, didn't want, we're not going to take it and didn't want to want to rock. What? I remember I was on, he was sitting in a chair in the, how? rehearsal studio <laughs> and i and 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 he and he's has tried to defend this but even in his defenses he has reinforced what i said so i am he's in a chair i am on one knee because i want to be ear to ear with him i'm like tom we're not gonna take it i want to rock it got to be on he goes we're not gonna take it he goes nah 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 he goes it's just so childish i go tom it's gonna be it's gonna be edgier it's gonna be more aggressive uh, you know, and he goes, and when he goes, I, I he says, and he said, I want to rock. He says, I, I, I produce Molly Hatchet. Dun, 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 I've done that already. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going, Tom. I said, and, and this is another thing. I used, I, I, I said, if I can write a song that's got the hook of a Slade song with the drive of an Iron Maiden song, that's what I was doing. I was doing Iron Maiden with that, with that riff, you know. Yeah, kind of a gallop. That was the Iron Maiden gallop. But he said, it's like Molly Hatchet. because it's not Molly Hatchet. And I said, I said, and I, I said, Tom, these songs are important. He goes, he goes, all right, you want them on the record? Fine. I don't care. So whatever you, whatever, if you want them on the record, fine. He just sort of gave in, but he didn't see one record. You know what I mean? He got eight points on that album. It sold, you know, <laughs> what, maybe 10 million copies. He's, he's bought a house with that record. Anyway, so... So I'm getting these are the these are the signals I'm getting from my producer. He Tom Warman brought in Saxon songs for us to consider from Law Law. Yes, I remember that. I'm like, this is Saxon. He goes, yeah. I said, we toured with them. He goes, they're very good. I go, we can't play Saxon. This, he wanted. <laughs> he was bringing us Saxon songs, not new ones either. The stuff that was people, all our fans knew. I go, we can't do Saxon. He goes, okay. I think you're making a mistake. So he didn't get it. Record labels giving all missed singles, and I'm pulling my hair out. Luckily, I had a lot. And Marty Colner, again, we're still one of the few business people I'm friends with, buddies for life, me and Marty. He says, what's the matter? I said, They're, nobody's understanding what the lead track should be. The rec companies, they're, now they're talking about burning hell. They, they don't, they're not getting it. So he said, what's the lead yeah. track? I said, we're not going to take it. He said, let me handle this. So this is the old days, people. Uh, the only thing older than this is smoke signals. He sends a telegram. <laughs> he sends a telegram to Doug Morris, who, by the way, takes credit for picking We're Not Going to Take It to this day as the lead track. Telegram said, hard at work on video for We're Not Going to Take It. Stop. This is going to be a smash. Stop. Marty Colner. The word is from the inside, the, the the telegram was brought into Doug Morris, and moments later, Doug Morris came out and announced the single is we're not going to take it. And the motivation for that was simply money was being spent already. Marty implied that money was being spent on the video, so decision had been made. So he said, we're doing we're not going to take it. And to this day, he says that was his thought, his idea. That was me telling Marty Colner, Marty Colner telegramming <laughs> Doug Morris and Doug Morris going, oh, shit. OK, we can't throw money away. OK, yeah. Yeah, we're doing we're going to take it. So I didn't have the feeling that I mean, I knew it was and I think the band did, but did not. I did not 
get the feeling from that and other people understood the significance of this song that's uh, amazing and and as as i've always said the artist usually knows best but the label likes to take credit as you oh, know yeah. <laughs> and and history likes to seem to re- rewrite itself but uh you know i want to fast forward now in honor of of, of christmas only being uh, five days away in uh, 2006, October to be exact, uh, you guys released a record called A Twisted Christmas uh, with uh, such uh, Christmas, uh, your take on Christmas songs is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, Silver Bells, and I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. And this song, Oh Come All Ye Faithful, which basically, We're Not Gonna Take It, was was kind of a rewrite of that standard. And it's amazing <laughs> when I went and listened to this track. Uh, the video is hilarious, uh, by the way. The, vi- the video is awesome. But uh, it starts with that uh, that that hook, that drum hook with AJ, and and you come in with with the Oh Come All Ye Faithful. There's a lot to be said about this, and uh, that's what this is. This, this episode of your show is about this song, in, in particular. <laughs> Going back to something you said earlier about it being a uh, four-bar blues, uh, it is, but uh, it's with some uh, adjustments. And um, I saw an interview with uh, with um, Elton John, and he was talking about his songwriting. He said that his biggest songs have been based on hymnal patterns hymns and he says he thinks that the hymn pattern behind them is an immediate familiarity to the listener they know it's subconscious but it's something well and this goes for christians by the way that i grew up in going to church every sunday but those those there's a there's a warmth there's a comfort there's some it, it resonates then you have the song, his original song on top of it. So we're not going to take it 15 years after it comes out. I'm in a van on a Widowmaker tour with Al Petrelli late one night. Uh, the other guys are asleep in the van and we're Al's driving. We're, and we're talking about songs that borrowed from other songs. And so, you know, we're talking about My Sweet Lord and She's So Fine. And there's a whole bunch of them. And he goes, and of course, you know, twist, uh, we're not going to take it. Oh, come on, you faithful. I went, what? He goes, we're not going to take it. He's like, oh, come on, you faith. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you don't know that? And then he goes, we're not going to take it. Oh, come on, you faithful. I said, holy shit. I remember looking up and going, <laughs> looking up, all those Sundays singing in the church choir, all those, we're not going to take it. That said, so it comes to the Christmas album, and I'll talk specifically about Oh, come on, you faithful. And I said, it'll be pretty funny if we do where I could take it with Oh, come on, you faithful on top of it. And that would be pretty funny. So we tried doing it and it didn't fit. So we were figuring out how do you fit it in there? And the late AJ Pirro, I told you he was uh he was a he was a, a musician and he was he was very talented. He sorted it out. If you listen to Oh Come All You Faithful, you do the structural Come All You Faithful. We're, we're not going to take it or come on you faithful 
it's not it's just melodies but we jammed the pitches yeah and we had to adjust a couple of things uh recently there's a mariah carrier well, have you seen that one the jam of we're not gonna take it and uh and her christmas song we'll fight the powers that be just Well, they really said I had to do some adjustments. But anyway, AJ Pirro figured out how to make shoehorn it. And that's what it was. And it works in the effect that you go, oh, yes, that's funny. We're not going to take it. Oh, come on, you faithful. But they're not quite like this. JJ has said, oh, yeah, it was amazing how this laid on top of each other. JJ, I love you. I like a, I like a brother. I adore you. Uh, we're buddies for life. JJ wasn't even in the room. He did. He never hung out for arrangements and things like that. That was me, Eddie, and, and AJ arranging all these songs. So he walked in, and it was done. He goes, oh, my God, it's amazing how this lays in there. And we're like, yeah, we just sat here for two hours figuring that out. But the point is made, and I and I'm you know and I and I'm grateful that I got a you know a song a public domain song that inspired me uh, to uh, to write uh, the biggest hit of my career and a and a, a folk song for all you know that song is going to live long past me. It'll be around for a long time. It, it's already become oh, yeah. it's already transcended the genre and become more. Yeah, no, it's it's great. I, and again, I, I I saved your episode for right before Christmas uh, because I wanted to, to tie in "O Come All Ye Faithful" with "We're Not Going to Take It." I thought it was a was a cool story to to end here. Uh, a couple more things before we break. Uh, you know, D, you've done five solo records. The first being in two thousand with uh, "Never Let the Bastards Wear You Down." Uh, your last two, 2018's "For the Love of Metal" and this year, 2021's "Leave a Scar," uh, both produced by Jamie Josta from Hatebreed. The records sound amazing and. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, you know, bouncing around, trying to figure out I had, you know, things I want to do. Never let the best way down. They call my first. And, you know, and in fairness, in honesty, more than fairness, uh, I was approached to do uh, a record. I said, I'm not doing a record. They said, well, do you have any, like, any old songs? I'm like, yeah, but they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I dug out these outtake songs from Twisted, from Desperado, from Widowmaker that I like. Remember I tell you, um, I mean, the Desperado album, Bernie Torme and I had written about a hundred songs for the Desperado album that never came out. That record's great, by the way. Thank you. Till, till years later, but it was, it was shelled by Elektra. But so it was so many outtakes. And so Never Let the Best Way Down was like, all right, I'll take the money. Went in. I didn't, you know, I, I wish I'd gone, put more time into it. Anyway, that's what that record was. Then I sort of said, I am not going to record anymore. And then um, I went, did. I was on Broadway with Rock of Ages, and I really, I, I'd, I'd been in theater in, in, in high school, and I, my parents used to take me to shows when I was a kid. And I always had a love for theater and musicals, and I always thought that a lot of musical songs really rocked. So I said, you know, I want to, I'm going to do a cover album of and rock these songs out. And uh, my manager said, Phil said, who's going to buy it? I said, probably nobody. I said, this is really self-indulgent. And uh, <laughs> and, it, and really, you've got great critical reviews, but it, it was not for everybody. It was a weird experiment, but I knew what I was doing going in. The next album, We Are The Ones, which has some great moments on it. I was a, I, I really, again, said, I'm done recording. And then I was approached by a pop producer who said, I think you could do a great mainstream rock album. And I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And uh, the record was great, but it didn't resonate with anybody. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't right. And then I said, okay, I'm done. 
And then Jamie Josta challenges me on his podcast. I'm like a sucker for a challenge. So if you got any ideas or anything, it's like truth or dare, I can't resist the challenge. So Josta says, I challenge you to do a real metal record. I say, Jamie, I would love to do a real metal record. I love metal. I'm an OG metalhead. My kids have kept me so in touch with what's going on. I go to shows. I just don't know how to where I belong. He goes, I know where. And I said, well, let's do it. And the first, and for the love of metal, was out of our own pockets, just went in and people poured out of, you know, Mark, just so many uh, people came from different bands and contributed and wrote and played. It was was touching, actually, to see, like, people like yourself, like, the love that was there for me. And, you know, and I was kind of feeling, you know, my time had passed. And here they were saying, oh, no, no, no. And, And Jamie said, dude, your voice, that's why I'm calling you here. I've seen you live. You're roaring. He says, you know, you roar. So I said, let's do it. So that record came out, went into the top 20, number one metal album in the, in, on the metal charts for months. And it did amazing. And sort of reconnected me where I, brought me where I wanted to be. So then I said, oh, I'm done. <laughs> and then COVID hit. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> you know what? I felt like, uh, I felt like uh, Ice Cube. Hey, Dre. What cube? I got something to say. So it was, hey, Jamie, what D? I got something to say. So we did leave a scar. And that went top number 19 on the Billboard charts and was number one metal album for a while. So I'm really proud of these records. I don't know when I'll stop. You know, I mean, right now, every, each for each record, I feel like, hey, that's it. I made my statement. And then something makes me a challenge or something makes me come out and do more. Well, I got to tell you, you're, you're one of the few guys from back in the day that can still bring it not only as a performer live, but your voice, you sound the same, man. You, I don't know when you made that deal with the devil, but you sound the same and you, and you look great. And and that's why Jamie, I think wanted to work with you. You know, there's, there, you, you haven't lost anything. Well, you know, that, and it's, it's incredibly high praise and, you know, uh, and we, you know, we all know what we look like with our clothes off in the mirror. So, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I know that four years ago, you know, Twisted Retired, I was rocking a six pack, going out shirtless and people going, what the fuck? I ain't taking my shirt off now. You know, I, as I said, in one of the last shows, I want a carb. I said, I'm going to re-record. I want to rock for I want a carb. I want to eat a damn muffin. I want a pancake. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm, 62, I'm 62 at that point. I'm going, I, I want to eat something. So uh, I've been eating. People, I'm not starving anymore. You, 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 you deserve it. And anything, anything you'd like to, to leave the listeners with, anything we didn't touch on, anything you got coming up that you'd like to let them know? You know, I'm always, uh, to me, it's about the next challenge. And, 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 you know, and the past is great and, you know, and, and I, you know, I love reminiscing and I love going out and doing a show or whatever. And, you know, I'll, people make me offers. I can't refuse. I'll go out there and, you know, play all the oldies, but to me, I'm, I'd much rather show you the new idea I'm working on the thing that sold nothing. I just wrote a, a novel and I'm trying to find my first, you know, fictional novel. I'm trying to find a home for that. That's I'm focused on that. I'm going to be directing my first movie and, um, and, uh, you know, so that I'm, I'm like really excited about that because it's new, it's challenging, exciting. And when I, when I did leave a scar, when I did new records, even doing the pop album or the uh, the, the, main, the mainstream rock album or the the Broadway record, here's things I never imagined doing. Matter of fact, I might have punched you in the face uh, for saying suggesting it uh, 40 years ago. Like you said that, oh, you yeah. know what, Celine, D, you're going to write a Christmas song and Celine Dion's going to record it. Take it back, man. Take on metal. You know, and uh, there's something that a lot of people don't know. 
is um, in the late, in the 90s, no, it was late 90s, I guess it was late 80s, very early 90s, my wife asked me to write her a Christmas song, and I wrote a Christmas song for her. I couldn't even sing it. I hired some people, recorded Merry Christmas. That was it. And the engineer on the session wound up working with Celine Dion, and she was looking for material, and he said, listen to this. And he plays her my wife's Christmas song, and Celine wants to record it. And I get a phone call, and now, mind you, this is early 90s, and I am in the doldrums of my career. Uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, all the millions I made, I've spent. And uh, phone rings, and are you sitting down? Yeah, why? Celine Dion wants to record God Bless Us Everyone. That was the original title. And I was like, first thing I said is, does she know who wrote it? And it's, this is like 92. <laughs> and he goes, uh, no, we haven't told her yet. I said, do not tell her. Satan wrote a Christmas song. Just put it on the damn record. He goes, well, there's one other caveat. She wants to change the name to The Magic of Christmas, parentheses, God Bless Us Everyone. Because there's a line in the song, this is the magic of Christmas Day. And I said, uh-huh. I don't care if she calls it, this song is a pile of dog shit. Just put it on the <laughs> album. And so yeah. uh, that album, These Are Special Times, is the biggest selling holiday record in history. It's like 14 or 15 million copies now. And uh, with my wife's Christmas song on there. So it's infiltrated. So many households are listening to a D. Snyder penned Christmas song, but it was never a rock song. I recently, last year, I recorded a rock version with Lizzie Hale. I just decided oh, cool. I wanted to do my own version of it after all these years. And also, you know, the ugliness of, of these past few years politically and whatever. The magic, you know, it's just it, the song itself is just about that time of year where everybody just seems like they get along for a few minutes. But maybe it's just an, <laughs> an illusion to say, hey, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to you. You know, and everybody seems like get along until, you know, till the knives are pulled out. But um, and I said, I think it's a good time to for me to record this song. So I did it. But anyway, that is a Christmas. So I wrote a Christmas song. So there's that. So it's the holiday season, people. And I wrote a Christmas musical, uh, which is called The Rock and Roll Christmas Tale. I staged it in Chicago and Toronto. By the time we got the second year, we got it down. Toronto had great reviews, but unfortunately, a lot of money had been put into it. And just the investors couldn't afford to keep it going. So I'm hoping to resurrect that sometime. So I'm a kind of a, I'm kind of a Christmas. Oh, and I've got, um, here's another one for you. It's just about Christmas. I love Christmas. 
the uh, Stupid Buddies. You know, Stupid Buddies, they do Robot Chicken. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, we're developing right now a heavy metal Christmas story, which has sort of taken the story in the We're Not Gonna Take It video and blown it into a stop-motion animation uh, Christmas special. So it's kind of that father-son dynamic, the kid who's dreaming about being a rock star, and my dynamic with my father, which is what that was based on. And we, we, we're right now in the process of writing, creating. We've been working for a couple of years on it now. Uh, a holiday special, which I hope you'll be seeing in a couple of years, because that would be kind of nice. <laughs> that, that's awesome, man. Well, uh, you know, it, it, your bandmates were right all those years ago. You, you're still on 11 at all no, times, uh, caffeine, getting, or caffeine or Tell not. Tell this guy to cut the caffeine. He's out of his mind. <laughs> it's awesome, man. You, you, uh, you're still inspiring me after all these years. I appreciate it. And, and thank you for uh, sitting up with us today. Chris, great talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for the very, you know, it was, it was, this is the first. I haven't hyper analyzed this song. I don't know if I was supposed to, but uh, I don't know if, I think, you know, there's something, I mean, you know, you're not necessarily like it connects, it doesn't connect, but it's interesting to, to this kind of analysis. And you've always been such an open, honest supporter of mine and uh, unapologetic. I am I, I, so one of those guys. It's, again, I'm, people are like, oh, I hate that guy. I love that guy. You know, and sometimes, you know, so I, I appreciate that you're one of those, like, like Sebastian Bach, another guy who just stands tall, D. Snyder, you know, as a yes. fan. Uh, I appreciate you and I thank you for that. Hey, everybody, don't touch that dial. There's plenty more Chris to make a podcast after a few words from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Each week on the One Hit Thunder podcast, we welcome a special guest to come take a deep dive into a one hit wonder artist with us. And together, we decide if that artist brought the one hit thunder or was nothing more than a one hit blunder. You can find One Hit Thunder anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button and join in on the fun each week. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your song via MP3 only and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is High Gin, a punk rock band from Brescia, Italy. The band consists of lead vocalist and guitarist James Paul Torini, bassist and backing vocalist Fabio Lantra Zanaletti, and drummer Francesco Pedersini. Here's a snippet of their song, So Much. Chris and Chris.
Well, man, I wish that all the listeners could have seen your face that entire time because I could really tell that you were talking to a childhood idol of yours. That was that was awesome, man. Yeah, man. He he. From the moment I started playing music, uh, the first time I ever played with Less Than Jake, I was I was fearless uh, in part because of D. Snyder. He was one of those front men that just, you know, I I, uh, I I emulated him. I was like, you get you got to take the audience head on, which he did, and he's he's one of my influences. And anytime I've ever met him, it, it's been it's been awesome. The first time I ever met him was back in 1998. Capitol Records uh, set up an interview with Details Magazine. D.'s first movie, Strangeland, was coming out. I uh, they flew me into L.A. Went to the Sunset Marquee Hotel. Went up to D's room. I'm shaking as I knock on the door. He answers, and we start talking. I interviewed him for for uh, for the movie and uh, met him probably three or four times since. Then the last time I met him was uh, your hometown, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. I was coming back from a less than Jake. Actually, it was Anti Fest uh, back in 2019. Ah. Or no, excuse me, 2018, uh, August of 2018. And, and I'm walking through the airport uh, looking for my gate, and I look over. And I'm like. There's D. Snyder, you know, <laughs> went over and talked to him. But yeah, t- t- today was uh, kind of a dream come true. The energy that comes out of that guy is amazing. I mean, he even talked about his own energy and how his own band had to be like, dude, will you settle down a little bit? But, you know, from the stage to even now in a, a podcast episode, uh, that's pretty inspiring to me. I try to be an energetic person too. I don't, I'm not on D's level uh, quite yet, but very inspiring. No, he, he's unreal. His energy has always, always been like that. And, you know, I, I wanted to give the, the forward at the top of the episode of, about the band because, you know, they were not one hit wonders. This band paid no. their dues. I mean, they kept kicking and, and clawing and scratching uh, until they finally got their, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're just deserve of, of, of everything that they had worked for. I loved how uh, upfront D was about something that you and I have talked about, and I've talked to friends about it over the years, but he talked about how he was successful. He became successful after struggling and getting all his inspiration for writing songs from that struggle, from that hunger. And then he was successful, and then he's trying to write songs, and he's like, I got nothing. Like, he's very honest about that. I feel like a lot of people who reach that level of success probably think they're writing their best stuff or whatever. But, Chris, you said to him, like, you couldn't really tell. I don't go as deep into the Twisted Sister catalog. I just know the hits. But you said you couldn't tell. But I thought it was really cool how honest he was about that. Well, I I, I could tell in, in uh, you know, in one, in one sense from the interviews and everything I've seen from D over the years. You know, he's... St- admitted that it, his ego got in the way after Stay Hungry and all, you know, sitting poolside writing the record and he alienated his bandmates. But uh, had I not have seen those interviews, I never really would have known, you know, Come Out and Play from 1985 was was just the next record. I loved that album. I think they picked the wrong uh, first single on that record. But, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. History is what it is. But he's always been very honest and forthcoming. And that's been another thing I think it's been very refreshing about D. Snyder. And uh, I thought it was cool. He talked about, it seems like in the metal scene, there was also that kind of thing that we've talked about from the punk rock scene, especially in the 90s, early 2000s, the sellout thing. I guess that was a part of the 80s metal culture. And I thought it was cool that he said, hey, if you're inspired by bands who sold millions of albums, if you're inspired by Queen, if you're inspired by Led Zeppelin, then how are you not going to 
try to do that? How are you going to try to not sell millions of albums? And I was like, yeah, that that really made sense to me. Well, and, and he was speaking the truth. You know, if you, if you say to yourself, well, what's he mean? Like, these guys were nobodies before. We're not going to take it. That is not true. I, as I said earlier in the forward, <laughs> these guys were selling out two to 3,000 seat venues all over New York State, up into New England, New Jersey, routinely doing four, five, six shows a week, selling them out. They were the they were the the, the local favorites, the the regional favorites, and they just could not get a record deal. Kept you know, like I said, clawing and, and scratching, trying to get a record deal, and then uh, you know uh, there was a lot of luck here. Uh, Doug Morris from from Atlantic Records US did not want anything to do with the band. Down to down to where Marty Colner, the the video director for We're Not Going to Take It, called him, and basically by that point it's like okay, money's being spent i'm gonna make this my idea i want we're not going to take it to be the single yeah right doug right hey i thought it was cool too and i now i've heard people say this a couple times in recent episodes des rocks said this in his episode that d wanted people to either love the band or hate the band (laughs) no in between because if people love it then they really love it and they if they hate it they really hate it i feel like i'm a little bit too sensitive of of a person to feel that way like i want everyone to like my band (laughs) and now i'm starting to realize like hey haters are a good thing because you know for every hater there's a bunch of people that really love the band i thought that was cool yeah no and i i I think that's kind of you know uh any kind of press is good press it's like all all those haters they're they're still talking about you you know even they they might not love you but they're still talking about you exactly and the one other thing i wanted to talk about with you real quick chris was you know the the fact that d was told and then realized like oh my god the melody of we're not going to take it is almost the same as oh come all ye faithful and then he got into talking about you know he referenced elton john talking about borrowing melodies from hymns and i've i've brought this up when talking about bands and artists borrowing melodies from like nursery rhymes yeah. you do as a kid Bl- blink 182 is always my example of that those leads those simple leads and melodies and blink songs always remind me of nursery rhymes and there's so- he, like d said there's something comforting about that sure sure and one last thing chris that i thought how many times it's like a broken record if we heard this on the show you know here here the producer tom worman wants to leave the two biggest songs we're not going to take it <laughs> and i want to rock on the cutting room floor d had to get on his knees and practically beg the guy and uh d couldn't have been more right you know i'm sure i can understand that a lot of time in people's stories but we're not gonna it's 1983 1984 and you hear the song we're not gonna take it and you say <laughs> you you want to pass on that you're handed i mean who, you're handed yeah. a, you're handed a hit on a golden platter and you want to pass on it i unreal i i don't get it how did that guy get his job i guess he probably there's a, he probably had a good track record, but I, I don't know about that one. Well, I'll tell you one track record that's pretty impressive, Chris, and that's 2021. All the brand new listeners that have joined us this year for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all our new supporting cast members, thanks to each and every one of you. It's, it's been awesome. It's been a true joy in 2021 to create this podcast. I've said that maybe on the past couple of episodes, but it really has been, and I'm really happy you're talking about track records, Chris. The list of guests that we've had this past year – I think it was pretty impressive, and I i don't know. I love showing that to people when they ask me about the podcast. I'm like, hey, look at this list of guests we have. I think it's pretty damn good. 
It is. And even for, you know, further removed from year one, this year, our guests have become more eclectic. We've gotten different genres. And, and that's something that you and I always wanted to do when we set out to do the show is just, you know, not just keep it uh, in my world of punk and ska to branch out. And I think we've done a great job of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not against doing the punk rock and the, the emo and the ska episodes and everything. I, I do think that's important. I think there's a lot of great songs to talk about. But man, if we limited ourselves to just that, I think that would get boring. Yeah, no, and I think that we're we're getting some new listeners. It's funny. Well, I, I we get these messages from from you, and and thanks to each and every one that writes us, uh, that tells us this kind of stuff. We get messages from people that say I wasn't necessarily into Scott or punk music, but you know I love Seether. I tuned into that episode. I found out who you know Chris was, and uh, I, I went back in your back catalog and I found all this amazing music and the, these amazing songs, and and that's awesome. I think it's the ultimate compliment when people. No offense, Chris, but when people don't know who you are or don't know who Less Than Jake was and just tuned into the show, whether it was because they saw it was an episode with somebody they they liked or just saw what the subject matter of the show was and happened to tune in and then you know maybe in backwards way found out about who you are and who your band is uh but i think that that is like the ultimate compliment in a way is if someone just enjoys the show and then is like oh shit this guy's in a a popular band himself i didn't even know that (laughs) yeah no it's it's really cool and and uh again we have to thank all the listeners for everything that we're talking about because without you guys we probably wouldn't still be doing this it's a lot of fun for chris and i to do this podcast but uh the joy is is seeing all you uh enjoy the podcast each week and i know it's hard to believe that 2021 is coming to a close but i thank each and every one of you who's ordered a custom song for me uh this year it's been it's been overwhelming uh that's right i write and record personalized custom songs for you that special someone a loved one friend or foe as well as jingles for businesses great for any occasion and valentine's day is right around the corner so if you'd like your very own custom song Email me, chrisdemakes at gmail.com for info. And if you haven't already, please join our Chris Demakes a Podcast Facebook group with almost 4,000 active members. It's an awesome and fun little community. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. I'd really appreciate it. And Chris and I here at Chris Demakes a Podcast would like to wish each and every one of you a very Merry Christmas. Thanks to this week's guest, D. Snyder, for sitting in with us. And we'll see you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.